Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Kelly Harding will join us to discuss the rabbit effect. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, kindness, something we should all strive for, but can it help us live longer, happier, and healthier? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Kelly Harding. Dr. Harding is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University's Irving Medical Center. She is a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. She is the author of the new book, The Rabbit Effect, Live Longer, Happier, and Healthier with the Groundbreaking Science of Kindness. And Dr. Harding, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Well, this is certainly a fascinating book. Uh, a lot of people value kindness, but how can it help us live longer? Sure. You know, as a physician, I was really shocked what matters when it comes to our health. I think when most of us think about health, we tend to think about diet, exercise, sleep, the occasional trip to the doctor. But when you look at the data, it's actually quite striking that our biggest determinant of our health is our social world and our relationships and how we're treated on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, it really comes down to kindness. Part of how I came to also write this was that I kept seeing patients on paper, they really looked critically ill, but then you'd meet them and they seemed like they were functioning quite well. They'd lived a long time with a serious illness. You know, they were doing better than expected. And then the, the flip side of that is patients who have this squeaky clean bill of health on paper where everything looks like it's checking out, like the labs, the, the physical exam, the imaging, but then the person doesn't feel well and isn't functioning well. And it sort of led to this question of, you know, what are we missing in medicine? So for me, it's led me down this journey from looking both at internal medicine and then psychiatry and then a research fellowship looking at unexplained symptoms. And then eventually I heard about this rabbit study. So I can tell you the gist of the rabbit study is that, you know, back in the late 1970s, uh, there wasn't a clear sense how diet and heart health were related. And so there were a series of studies looking at this. And one of the studies was being done by this lovely researcher named Dr. Robert Neerum, who's a basic scientist. And he was looking at virtually genetically identical rabbits, giving them all the same high fat diet, expecting the same not great health profile. And what he found is that in the study, one of his groups of rabbits had way better, like 60% better health outcomes than the other groups of rabbits in the study. And, you know, being good researchers, they thought there was something wrong with their protocol. They double checked, everything checked out. And then they noticed that all of the rabbits that did better were under the care of the same researcher. 
And she wasn't just feeding the rabbits. She was giving them pets. She was talking to them. She was basically giving them love and kindness. And so they repeated the study, this time with tightly controlled conditions. They got the same response. They published it in the journal Science. And, you know, like many journal articles, it just sort of sat there for many years. But the upside is now, four decades later, we have ample evidence that our social world is changing our physiology in ways that we didn't necessarily understand and that it's impacting our health outcomes in ways we didn't necessarily appreciate. So the rabbit study was this early precursor and it's really exciting science comes from when people are paying attention. There was something with that study when things were not going as anticipated. And instead of like repeating it with a different researcher, they really stopped to think like, what's happening here? What are we missing? You mentioned that there are all these factors that really influence our health that we call the hidden factors um, that we don't often pay attention to. And I'm you maybe talk a little bit about some of those. So the estimate is that medical care probably accounts for only 10 to 20% of our overall health status. Now, that's a critical piece of it, and absolutely everybody needs access to quality, affordable medical care. But that being said, we've got to look at these other hidden factors. So we know that genes play a role, but it turns out actually that they don't play as much of a role as we originally thought, and that they're also influenced by the social world. So in the book, I take us sort of on a journey or the reader through a journey on all these different hidden factors. So, you know, it really starts in our homes with our one-on-one relationships, with our most intimate relationships, and then moving out, thinking more about our social networks, our friendships. We now know that loneliness is as significant a risk factor for health as other well-established risk factors like smoking, alcohol use, even obesity is considered less of a risk factor statistically, which is surprising. But again, it's looking at our social network and how that impacts our health. And then also looking at our workplaces, which I think that's a really underestimated area. People don't realize, we think about having a good doctor is important to our health, but we don't usually think that having a good manager is also critical to our health. So I talked about that in the rabbit effect. We talk about the role of education and how that's probably the grandmother of hidden factors when it comes to thinking about our health. And so there's statistics that show that for every one life saved by biomedicine, education saves eight, which is really quite striking. So for any teachers who are out there listening, you're really in the health business as well, thinking about that. And then also thinking about how we treat one another on our, I call it the golden rule. You know, how are, how are we treating each other as a society and in our communities? And that includes both in our physical neighborhoods close to us, but then also in our broader social networks. We have a lot of pain out there and it's something that we need to be talking about. So I, I include all that interesting research in the book as well. How much are these factors related to one another? Well, the different studies try to do just that. And so that's how I group them in those different areas. But you're absolutely right. And a lot of these overlap. If we think of a person at the center of circle of ripples, kind of closest relationships probably have our biggest impact on us. And we know that from like the first days of life, basically, that's impacting our relationships. Or a baby is born and all the cascade of events that are occurring with epigenetics after that are having this lifelong effect. What's nice about it is the first thing is being aware that all these things are happening and you can sort of like break it down, but also that you can sort of double up. A good example is actually taking a class. So, you know, we know that education seems protective and not just formal education, but 
lifelong learning is health protective. But the thing is, when you take a class, especially if you're taking a class in person, you're often connecting face to face with other people. And we know that that is having a positive impact on health as well. And then you form relationships from that, all the good supports that come out of it. So you can use what you learn in the class to focus on your life's purpose and changing your community. And I mean, that's where it gets quite interesting, right? Like things that as a doctor, I never imagined would make a difference to people's health, but it actually turns out it does, you know, having a sense of purpose and usefulness are tremendous. So there's definitely overlap, but I would say the key thing is first recognizing it because we are, we're not doing a great job right now when it comes to recognizing this in our, when it comes to our health. Cause I mean, it's no secret that America has, when you look at other wealthy nations around the world, we are not performing, especially for the amount of money we spend on healthcare. We are not performing at the levels that one would expect, whether it comes to life expectancy, whether it's the likelihood of a child reaching her fifth birthday, when it comes to mental health outcomes, we are we are not doing great. And so that's why probably a big piece of that is all of this, that we are not considering, we think of health often as healthcare and not all of the things that are happening in our communities and our homes. Sort of reminded of happiness studies. They find that happiness isn't necessarily correlated with the amount of income that's received, but rather types of bonds and communities that uh, exist. Oh my gosh. I know it's actually quite fascinating when you look at it from a global perspective. And in the book, I interview and and look at the data from economists that look at this too, because it does seem as though, I mean, absolutely getting out of abject poverty improves health and happiness, but beyond a certain amount, and it varies somewhat from location to location, it doesn't really add that much to our overall levels of well-being, which is interesting because a lot of us kill ourselves (laughs) to make more money in different ways. So it's something we need to actually be looking at quite seriously. Like there's this idea that it's sort of like gross national happiness as opposed to looking at GDP as just a predictor of country's success. The thing is, we know that, that money plays a role, but not as much as we thought. And also when it comes to mental health, there are studies that also show that people in areas where you would think that they would do worse because of the poverty do better when there's better social support. So what is the mind-body link between these factors and what it does to our body? So one of the things I talk about in the rabbit effect is how profound our mental health is when it comes to our physical health and how it's missing link to a large extent. Because the other thing is this country, there's a lot of pain and we're not necessarily talking about it because of the shame and stigma around it. So it seems as though you almost think of a triangle with physical health on one corner, mental health on another, and then also our social world. True health is somewhere in the center of that because we know that all those factors are playing a, a critical role, but they're what the mystery was that I was trying to figure out when I started all this. It's like, what were we missing when it comes to these patients that are still not feeling well, even though everything looking good? And it's like looking in these other areas because we have to broaden our view of health. And I think if we do, we'll realize that the the burden of health and making sure that we have healthy country isn't necessarily happening in our doctor's offices and our clinics. It's happening in our communities and our homes. And that's where, you know, mental health, like feeling supported on a day-to-day basis and feeling that other people have our back makes a tremendous difference. So probably on other episodes of your show talked about ACEs, I imagine, or adverse childhood experiences. 
you know, for a lot of people, even among the medical community, not necessarily appreciating the role that trauma plays in our physical health, sometimes decades down the road is, is quite profound. Bringing awareness around this, thinking about things that can be done to try to ameliorate some of the pain that is out there. And again, until now, I think a lot of people have been looking for pills or solutions that are sort of more medicalized, but we have to be thinking about in the community. So, you know, one of the things that I've been talking to a lot of people about, especially because I know your program has a very broad reach is um, mental health first aid is something that a lot of people could consider doing. And it's a way to help people in communities. And it's meant for, it's sort of the new CPR. It's meant for people who are in schools and law enforcement, no matter where you are, you can actually help save a life by starting to learn to pay attention to the mental health of the people around you. How well do you think these ideas are percolating through the medical community, but also people's sort of appreciation for these factors in terms of their health? It's been heartwarming to me as far as sort of being out there, because I think for a lot of people, it's kind of common sense. We feel better when we have like a supportive hand on our shoulder, when we get a hug from someone we love, when we are going through a hard time and we have a friend who is helping us and is by our side. We know all that just as human beings. It makes sense. But what's really cool is we actually now have decades of public health data that back this up or We know that people who feel supported in their workplaces take less sick leave, that they have lower health care costs. There seems to be this large correlation that resonates with so many people, but I think they didn't necessarily know that there was all this science behind it. And I think that's where it gets really exciting. And we can do so much. And what's exciting is every single person who's listening has it in their power to influence their circle around them and to make positive changes because I'm not confident that the big changes are coming at sort of the system level when it comes to how we can improve America's health. But one of the things that all of us have in our power is to use kindness and to use awareness of a lot of this in our day-to-day lives. And I'm talking like standing at the grocery store, being aware of the people that are around you, saying hi to people, reaching out to people who look like they're in need. I'm talking about at our workplaces. I've joked that you could probably toss out a lot of HR manuals and just write, be kind, because we really need to do a better job focusing on how we're treating each other and how we resolve conflicts in our schools and how we prioritize education and how we prioritize things in our own lives and also in how we deal with other people. Because I think a lot of us learned math and science in school, but we probably didn't learn a class on conflict resolution. But yet again, that's something that we probably use every day in our day-to-day lives. So sort of like bolstering some of those skills and thinking about that it actually has a huge impact on our health and well-being. And like we talked about, it's probably mediated through stress, through all these different factors. But stress is a part of life, but we've got to learn how to navigate it in a way that it's more of a challenge than it's seen as a detriment. Where would you like to see kindness research go and how would you like to see it better implemented in their lives and in practice of medicine? Well, I'll start with closest to my heart in terms of medicine. So especially for physicians who are listening out there, oh, and I work with medical students too, we have so much burnout among people who are in the healthcare field. And I think a large part of this is because we're not addressing these hidden factors of our health and thinking about how our social environment is impacting the person around us. Like we've all had the patient with what is essentially a treatable illness who just continues to get worse and worse. And often because of what's happening in that person's home, in their community, their relationships. So we need to be 
starting a more interdisciplinary approach. And it's not just going to help our patients. It's going to help us as providers too, because when we acknowledge that a big piece of our health is happening in our communities, we also can put the resources towards that. And I think what's amazing is we actually have it. We have the resources right now to tackle this stuff, but we have to turn our attention. I also get caught up in the sort of like razzle dazzle of biomedicine, but we have to pay attention to what's happening in our communities because it's got this huge impact. So, so that's, that's a piece of it. And then when it comes to the rest of us, really, it comes down to like, be kind and think about how you can practice that. We all have our moments. We're human beings. And there are great studies that show even those of us with the best of intentions sometimes blow it. So just recognizing that forgiveness is going to be a piece of this too. But we have to be having conversations about how we can do better because we absolutely have it within our power. We were just talking with Dr. Kelly Harding, her new book, The Rabbit Effect, Live Longer, Happier, and Healthier with the Groundbreaking Science of Kindness. And Dr. Harding, thank you so much for your time. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. And thank you for all the work you do to highlight science and all the great things that we can do. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.